I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith in our daily life, so that together, you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. We are in the midst of the Easter season, coming towards an end, though. Uh, we begin celebrating Easter on Easter Sunday, well, that makes sense, and we take it all the way to Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, the 50th day of Easter, uh, and that's when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, uh, it's considered the birth of the church, uh, but right before that, Jesus, when he raised from the dead, he didn't just rise from the dead and then immediately leave, he spent 40 days where he interacted with his apostles, and it was witnessed by uh, by hundreds who saw him, who interacted with him, who spoke with him. Uh, and in, in, I think there's a number of reasons that Christ did this. One uh, is he needed to establish that he really did rise from the dead, right? It wasn't just a matter of him, you know, his body being taken and then like, ooh, there's an empty tomb, therefore it must be. No, he knew that we are naturally skeptical people, and so he spent 40 days appearing to his disciples uh, and, and to others, right? So that we could say, no, not only is the tomb empty, but we have seen him with our own eyes. Uh, Chuck Colson it was um, one of the, the White House officials for Nixon around the time of Watergate. And he, in prison, uh, converted to Christianity uh, and, and in that time, he said, Watergate convinced me, he said, because uh, he went to prison and spent time there for his role in that. He said, Watergate, Watergate convinced me that the resurrection was real. He said, because 11 men could not keep a secret for three weeks <laughs> in his experience at this high-level uh, scandal. And here it is that these 11 disciples went out and under pain of torture and death and martyrdom, they continued and held that story because they had seen it. They were telling the truth. It wasn't a lie they were trying to cover up. And so here he spends these 40 days interacting with the apostles. And then at the end of those 40 days, he ascends into heaven. That happened on uh, Thursday, if you count 40 days out. That was this past Thursday. And in many places in the world, that's when you celebrate the ascension of the Lord. It's a solemnity. We all go to church, and it's a wonderful day. Uh, but if you're, if you're out on the West Coast and a couple other places in the world, uh, that gets pushed to Sunday. So we're going to talk about it as if it is in the future, but because where I live, it is on the future, right? We're going to celebrate that tomorrow. And so we're going to spend some of today talking about the ascension of the Lord, but specifically about what happens at the ascension. Because Jesus comes, uh, calls the disciples, the 11, to him, uh, and they meet him on the mountain, and then he gives them the Great Commission. Now, I think it's interesting that he, he gives them this Great Commission before uh, it happens. It's not an instantaneous thing. He gives them a promise, and they have to wait even longer for this promise to come. You know, they, they walked with him for three years. They knew him. They loved him. They, they interacted with him intimately and knew the way that he thought, and yet they still, even here at the Great Commission, didn't quite get it. And he said, don't go anywhere. Stick around here in Jerusalem for uh, until I send the Spirit. He didn't give them a time frame, right? It could have been uh, it could have been 10 years, and yet 
it wasn't. It was 10 days. And so here he tells them. He gives them a sense of what's to happen. He says all authority, this is out of Matthew, although all the Gospels uh, talk about it. He says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. And so here Jesus is coming to them and he's saying, your experience with me is not an end in and of itself, but your experience with me has prepared you for mission, right? Uh, It's not just so that you can have a a spiritual life and a relationship with God. Uh, Although those things are important, they are not the, the end. They are the means by which we then share in the mission of Jesus Christ to help bring about the redemption of the world. It's what we pray every week at Mass when we get to the Our Father and we say, uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By saying that in prayer, we're basically saying to the Lord, uh, let it be done to me according to your word, just like Mary said in her uh, response to the Holy Spirit. Let it be done to me according to your word. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in me, and let me help bring it about in this world, on earth as it is in heaven. And so here, right at the ascension, before he leaves, before he is taken away from them in their sight, they watch him, uh, and the scripture talks about being taken up into a cloud. Uh, They watch this happen. And before he does this, before he gives them that miraculous sign of him returning to heaven, he looks at them and says, okay, We're not done here, right? Uh, Even though on the cross he said, it is finished, and that redemption was taken, did take place then. It was finished. Even so, our part is not finished. He comes to us and he says, come into relationship with me. Come and be redeemed and reconciled to my Father and your Father. And now, go ye therefore and make disciples. And that's a, that's a, a big topic. It's one we're going to spend a little bit of time on today. We're certainly not going to cover it all. But what does it mean for us, empowered by the redemption that we have received, to go out now and to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to introduce people to Christ, to train them, to show them what it means to live a holy life? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, people who look like us and people who don't. This is a big commission. It's the great commission that was given to you and to me and to the whole church, we who are his body. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Tim Glimkowski. He's the founder of La Alto Catholic Institute, and he's helping parishes do just that, to create a culture where they go out and make disciples. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash stepoutsidethewalls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith. 
I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. And during this season of Easter, Eastertide, we have been exploring the Mass, the Eucharist, the source and the summit of our faith. We've been looking at it through different lenses, but today, here, uh, tomorrow is the Feast of the Ascension. It's a big day for us in the church, as this is the day that uh, we were given the Great Commission and Christ ascended into heaven. Uh, in preparation for next week's celebration of Pentecost, uh, we'll talk about that next week, don't worry. But as they received power from the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they were able to live out the mission that was given to them by Christ himself out of uh, the very mouth of Christ, the words of the Word made flesh, go into all the world and make disciples. We're talking today with Tim Glemkowski. We've had him on the show before. He's the president and founder of La Alto Catholic Institute. You can find him over at lalto-catholic.com. Tim, thanks for being on the show with us today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So La Alto Catholic Institute is a, in in a lot of ways, it's a school for parishes of uh, how to better implement this this mission that Christ gave us of going and making disciples. Talk to us just a little bit about what you do uh, with La Alto Catholic Institute. Yeah, so that's that's kind of our heart is just working with with parishes and with dioceses. Um, to really help them focus their efforts to form disciples. So we, we come alongside parishes and accompany them through a, a journey, you know, of, of coaching and, and, and leadership uh, training, a bunch of different stuff, you know, really all of it aimed at um, helping the parish's mission to focus more on, uh, on forming disciples, really on, on helping to, you know, put that, that relationship with God as, as primary and central um, again in parish life, you know, which is, um, kind of a hot topic in the church right now. A lot of people are talking about that, you know, this, and that's really just a continuation of the, the mission that is put before us in the second Vatican council and in John Paul II calling for a new evangelization, you know, Pope Benedict and Pope Francis making encounter with Christ. So like primary as a theme of both of their pontificates and a lot of parishes, as they start to wrestle with those themes, those ideas struggle to really understand how to implement them fully in their parish life. And so we just walk with them and and uh, and help them make that culture change. You know, I, I see this throughout history. And if, as a student of history, you see cycles and seasons where there there's this push, like with St. Francis of Assisi, with St. Dominic, with all, with all of these great founders of orders who are looking to uh, to restore the faith and to help catechize and to to really make saints, to make disciples. Uh, and then there's a, a lot of times a season of just kind of sitting back and reaping the rewards of that, forgetting that harvest is always coming, right? There's always going to be a time uh, that we need to be cultivating faith, that we need to be planting seeds. Uh, and so I see us now, uh, part of this is cultural, you know, it's easy to get comfortable with a, a culture that embraces the, the, the trappings of Christianity. And then when the reasons aren't behind it, eventually those trappings fall away, as we've seen here in our own culture. Um, and there has to be then a more intentional uh, focus on on what it means to be a follower of Christ and to build disciples uh, that go beyond just the cultural expectations. Yeah, I think that's it. Really, like the the new evangelization is it's a response to a cultural situation. Like we're we're watching, you know, once Christian nations become increasingly secularized. And yeah, that's kind of a good way to put it. Like, I don't know if it's just, we kind of, 
were able to to maybe rest a little bit more in that that the 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 pox of of Christendom or something like that, where you know Christian culture supplies so much of the the Catholic identity. Like it really is that it's like a not a crutch, but a I don't know, a, you know, one of those columns that hold things up uh, in buildings. Like it, it really helps to to keep that 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 culture alive and. And yeah, very much so now we're, we're seeing that that's no longer the cultural reality that we're working in, in, in post-modernity. And so, I mean, thankfully, like you said, I actually, I mean, I, I do see though it's kind of still in, in, in seed form, it's sprouting up, uh, in the, across the world really. But, but I think people are, you know, it's, it's po- popular sometimes for people to, uh, in certain, you know, blogosphere kind of conversations to almost say, well, we've been doing this new evangelization thing for 30, you know, 30 years now. And, and we, we're still not seeing the fruit, uh, that, you know, that it's called for. So really go, clearly it doesn't work or, or something, but really it's going to be the project of generations, um, to really become a missional church. And, and I think in many ways for a time, maybe we, um, have just tried to tweak some of the trappings and uh, just in order to make the church like the, I think the heart of the second Vatican council defy the world, you know? And so that's where I think this project in many ways is still just really coming to, to its first great kind of uh, crest. Like I, I still see, I still see a lot of, a lot of energy in terms of sprouting up. So I, I think I'm, I'm quite hopeful, even though the cultural situation seems difficult at times. I'm hopeful that I do see the church responding and the Holy spirit at work, um, to make that happen. Mm-hmm. We're talking today with Tim Glomkowski, founder of the La Alto Catholic Institute, a L-A-L-T-O Catholic.com. You know, I, I've been reading and meditating on the, uh, the story of the Ascension, the, the readings that we get out of, uh, for, for this Sunday's mass. And that first reading is the story of the Ascension out of the, uh, the book of Acts, which if you don't know, uh, is, the second half of the Gospel of Luke, right? Luke's the same author, and basically Luke splits up uh, all of the things that Jesus began to do and teach before the ascension, is the Gospel of Luke, and all that Jesus Christ began to do and teach after the ascension through his apostles. Uh, That's now the book of Acts. And one of the things that's interesting in in that telling of uh, the ascension in this book of Acts is that even at this place, when Jesus is saying, hey guys, uh, I am returning to the Father, their first question is, okay, so now are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel to earth? And and he very patiently to them says, it's not for you to know the day and the time. Uh, rather, you will be my witnesses when you receive power from the Holy Spirit to go into all the world, right? So even there, I see us sometimes following in the path of the disciples, looking for those external trappings of power and of influence, right? We want to see our own uh, cultural realities influence the whole world. Let's restore our kingdom. And and Jesus comes to them and says, oh, no, 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 I've got an entirely different kingdom in mind, right? This The whole process of the, uh, the commission uh, is dependent upon Pentecost. He's saying, hold on to that thought. I know you want to restore things. Hold on to that thought because the Holy Spirit's coming and then you'll be my witnesses. Yeah, they're asking him when, right? And 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 they're they're hoping that the answer is, you know, right now. Like as I'm leaving, it's it's going to happen. So they're they're, you know, bent on that that when question and Jesus answers them, you know, by saying, he's not I'm not going to tell you when, but I am going to tell you how. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, it's not for you to know times or seasons, but you will receive power. Like that's how the kingdom is going to be built. And the same is true in our day and age, right? Like there's only one way that the kingdom has ever been built and it's through disciples. It's through people filled with the power of the Holy spirit, bringing the kingdom, uh, throughout the world. So yeah, this is one of my, one of my favorite passages in scripture. So as we're talking about, um, receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's bring this back to the Eucharist because the the church talks about the Eucharist as the source and the summit. And I think sometimes we expect that that means that it is the end all be all rather than the from all and to all, right? That all things flow uh, from the Eucharist, all the other graces, all the other sacraments flow out of the Eucharist. And they also direct us and those that we're discipling back toward the Eucharist, uh, that we receive our power from Christ and we are uh, made sharers in his divine nature so that we can then go into relationship, into communion with the Father. Yeah, and I think that's the key, what you talked about there, like made partakers in the divine nature. That's a phrase from Peter in his letter. And I think that's the key to what we're talking about here when we're discussing the Eucharist and it's relation to, and we do this as Catholics sometimes, right? We love to split up like everything into its own kind of topic. So, mm-hmm. you know, the Eucharist and the Holy Spirit, those are two separate topics. That's not really the way that the Lord sees it, right? It's one great, uh, you know, kind of uh, tr- tradition and even one one way of, of the divine life um, acting within us. Yeah, I think it's telling that, you know, another ascension passage in, in Matthew Jesus, when he gives them the great commission uh, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, it's a famous passage. Mm-hmm. He ends that, that that chapter by actually saying, and lo, I will be with you always until the, the end of the age. And so the question for us is, where is Jesus you know, perpetually with, with us as a church? Well, in, in its fullest form, it's in the gift of the Eucharist, right. that, that that persistence, like the, 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 the point of the church in a certain sense is, is the place where all nations can come flooding toward the new Jerusalem in order to encounter, to be with God in the presence of God. But the key there is what you talked about, which is that, that deification, like the reason that the Eucharist and mission are linked, um, in, in my opinion, the, the, the idea of the source and summit is that, uh, at the end of the day, the, the way that the world will be brought to Christ is when we ourselves are first made into saints and the Eucharist makes saints. Like that's just the reality is the, the 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 Catholic picture of salvation has always been, you know, they'll use different words in the Greek tradition. It's um, theosis. We use the word divinization more often, but it, but it's actually God became man so that man might become God. Like it's, our salvation is something more than just an extrinsic kind of legal justification. It's actually a complete and utter like cha- like changing of our nature, a, a transforming of our nature. You know, it's, it's still human nature, but glorified um, to become partakers in the divine life. And when we become that, that's when we actually start to set the world on fire, right? The famous Catherine of Siena quote, set, you know, become who you're meant to be and you'll set the world on fire. Well, that happens primarily through the gift of the Eucharist. Um, and so, you know, that that's their, these, these two events, Pentecost and the Eucharist. I mean, it's, it's even interesting that they're eating when, when he's talking with them, right? And like the biblical, you know, when you're, whenever you see eating in, in, a, in, in the New Testament, like there is supposed to be that part of you that just lights up a little bit with, with the idea of the mass and the, the Eucharist and um, Christ's own nature. Yeah. And I think a lot of times um, we, we hear this idea of divinization. We've talked about it these last couple of weeks. Uh, we, we think it means somehow that we're going to, 
to take on all of the characteristics of God, that all of a sudden now, how do we as creature become uncreated? Or uh, somehow we might think that it has something to do with, with the, the power or the omniscience of God. And, and what it rather means, just as Jesus took on our nature uh, and, and became mortal, he gives us the, the life, the fullness of life. He gives us holiness, which is his nature. And what is a holy person other than a saint? Uh, to be a saint is what it means to be divinized and to share in the nature of Christ. Yeah, and, and I love uh, a quote from um, Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, he, he talks about, I forget where it is exactly, but it always has stuck with me, the introduction to Christianity he says, in the final analysis, there's only two great arguments for the truth of, of the Catholic faith, um, which is her art and her saints. And, and I think that's the reality. It's like even at the end of the day, like the best scientific argument that we put forward, uh, you know, someone can try to find a way to, to weasel out of it, you know, the, like Loctite logical, you know, whatever, um, apologetic presentation of the faith. But, but there's something about Mother Teresa. There's something about John Paul II that you just can't quite argue that these are the masterpieces of God. Like God has broken into our reality in, in through these people. Like he's so totally changed their, their, their person that they, they're the masterpieces of the, of the divine you know, creator. We're talking today with Tim Glimkowski, founder of La Alto Catholic Institute about becoming disciples and making disciples. There's much more to this conversation on the other side of this break. Join us over on Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls on Twitter. The handle's at Outside the Walls. But don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam, and here we are almost at the end of the Easter season. We've got this Sunday is the Ascension. Next Sunday is Pentecost, and it's going to be just celebration after celebration. We're talking today with Tim Glimkowski, founder of the La Alto Catholic Institute. Go on over to their website, laltocatholic.com. They've got an ebook there for you called The Missionary Key, uh, How to Change the Culture of Your Parish. It's available for free. Just give them your email address. Uh, and they'll give you this wonderful book, but then you'll also get some other things periodically, not too often, that help you become a maker of disciples. Tim, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, and let's be honest, they can always just... Uh give their email and then unsubscribe right away too, you know? So uh, there's, there's ways to get, to get around our monthly newsletter, even if you don't want it. Why, why would they want to do that? <laughs> they would never want to. Well, once would. a month is not too much to get an email. That's all I'm saying. No, that's not it. Yeah. Uh, so in between the break there, you were talking uh, as we, in the last segment, we're talking about the, this concept of divinization of how partaking in the Eucharist also in some way mysteriously makes us sharers, as uh, St. Peter put it, sharers in the divine nature. Uh, and one of the things you said in the break was that God's nature doesn't compete with ours. Our natures are not in competition with one another. And I think that we see that very clearly in the fact that Christ was able to, to maintain his nature even as he took on our nature. Uh, and so that shows us that the human nature is compatible 
in some way with the divine nature. Can't break that thought out for us a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's the reality of God's salvation, you know, is, uh, it, it, he's always going to work with our nature and be cooperative with even, even human choice and human free will. Um, and so the, the same is true of, of the way that he you know, kind of gently guides us and, and leads us to open up and to, to, to be kind of co-workers with him in our own salvation by giving him the, 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 uh, the space, you know, almost to, to do that. And so the reality is, is that, that, that non-competitive, uh, nature of God with human nature also extends to the, the, like, it's not like the, the divine nature kind of subsumes our humanity or takes it over. Um, but it's, it's exactly who we are fully alive. So St. Catherine of Siena's famous quote, right? Become who, who you're meant to be and you'll set the world on fire. Like he's going to take you and all of your uniqueness and, and gifts, like everything he's put in you. And it's just going to be that supercharged. Um, and I think that's a key thing, even for the way we think about holiness, like, all of the holiest people I know were also deeply human. And I don't mean like just human. Sometimes we use that word human to just mean flawed or something like that, you know, like they swear or something like that because they're human, they're real, you know? But what I mean by that is like they're, they're, they're fully who they are meant to be. Like it's not um, that, that temptation toward angelism, I think is always found. I know I myself personally, you know, struggled in my own spiritual life to avoid that temptation of thinking of God's Salvation is somehow going to be an eradication of my humanity and not just a perfection of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's St. Athanasius who said, the glory of God is man fully alive. Uh, and if I'm wrong on the saint, you'll correct me. Um, yeah, it's him. But, you know, we, we've, we do have this tendency to talk about the human nature as being bad. Uh, almost in a, uh, a Gnostic way of thinking that the flesh is bad. Uh, well, yeah, it's just fallen human nature. And we forget that we have to use the term fallen in order to, to show that human nature is bad. Because before, you know, God created the human nature in Adam and Eve, and he said, it's very good, right? When he looked at his creation that he made before we fell away, uh, he, he acknowledged and declared that it was a good thing. Uh, and, and so it's not beyond the pale for us to then be able as humans, uh, to have that nature, as you said, perfected, uh, that, that through gazing, because you, you become what you look at, right? Through gazing at Christ, uh, we are able to not only mimic his actions, uh, but to, to begin to live out his holiness and to live out the relationship that he had with the father. Yeah, I think I think a lot of Catholics like we we do have this late kind of Pelagianism in us, um, which coupled with kind of like an an Irish Jansenism becomes this really interesting like spiritual soup where we, we kind of think of our salvation as yeah I'm going to overcome my human nature and I'm going to do it through my own effort and then God will be pleased with me and like that's what salvation means. But the whole logic of of the idea that it's salvation itself means that we actually need to be saved. So human nature, good but fallen given the grace through the sacraments to actually live this new life in Christ and coming back to our kind of our key theme, which is the missional element of that. Then how does that relate to the mission of the church? Like it's exactly there that the Eucharist becomes the entire food for the church's missionary activity. And again, this is where we see everything so segmented in our church. Sometimes it's like, you know, is it, is it the mass or is it missionary activity that's important? Or is it the Holy spirit? Or is, it's just, it's all one piece. Like there is no, it's, it's always the both and, and so when we see in this logic in Jesus's own life of this dynamic of exitus and reditus, so to go out and to come back, to return. And um, 
it's the the motion of the incarnation itself. Like Jesus goes out from the Father in order to bring us back to the Father to a relationship with Him, and He does the same thing in His public ministry, right? He He goes out and gives and and does miracles and preaches and forms His apostles, and then He He's always going back. You know, late into the night, He's He's with His His Father in in relationship and in prayer. And the church is supposed to imitate Christ then in her missional activity. So it's supposed to be, that's what we mean by source and summit is everything that the church does, which is everything she's about is supposed to be about the salvation of all of mankind. That's like why the church exists, right? It's her vocation. Right. It, it flows from the Eucharistic table in both power and, uh, you know, purpose goes out. That's literally the end of the mass. Ite misa est means like, you know, go, you're sent mission, right? M- right. Misa, the, ma- the word mass itself. And then it's it's a return to the Eucharistic table. So we bring people back to to that encounter, that that vertical dimension of the church's life, which is that encounter with the Father. And so it, the, the like it's just not it, it's not as much um, it's not as fragmented as we would like to think it is. Yeah, we're talking today so, with Tim Glumkowski, founder of the Alto Catholic Institute, L A L T O Catholic dot com. Uh, you, you know. We, we do. We think about the Mass as this thing that we go to on Sunday. We have to go to it because it's a holy day of obligation and our, uh, our, we were raised this way. We, we're, we're good people, therefore we go to Mass. Uh, but when I look at the Mass, I think of Christ in mission. And right when he was here on earth, before he went out and, and preached to the crowds, before he, uh, all of the times we're looking in Scripture and he heals someone, go, go back like a page and you'll see that he goes away to a lonely place, to a solitary place, to encounter God in prayer. And we have the opportunity by going to Mass, uh, not just on Sunday, really it's available all the time. We have the opportunity to go and to encounter Christ in the Eucharist, to, to join in union with him, to empower our mission. And, and frankly, uh, our mission in and of our own effort is never going to succeed. Uh, just by way of example, and I promise it's not by way of bragging, uh, way back in the day, I felt very strongly that God was calling me to a 40-day fast. And so, you know, I, I started and day seven was excruciating. I, but psychologically, I was just sure I was going to die. It was That was just what was going to happen. But I pressed through and I made it through the 40 days and I was... I was great. Uh, I received some spiritual insight and it, it changed the course of my life. And it's what I needed at that point. Uh, later, I just thought of, you know, a couple of years later, oh, I'm, well, you know, I need to be holy. I need to, to kind of get back into that thing. So I'm going to do another fast. And I think I made it two days. I mean, through my own effort, by my own decision, I could do nothing. Uh, but empowered by the, the call of God into something, uh, I was able to do far beyond what I ever imagined. And, I, and that translates all the way through the mission that we're called to as Christians. Yeah, and that's and that's where, you know, with all of the conversations surrounding evangelization and missionary activity in the church now, the people who I respect the most always have a, a deep appreciation for how much of that flows from this relationship with God. That's not just about our programs or our processes or our, or our, our human strategic planning, but, but it all really flows from like, uh, you know, we have no ability to make disciples on our own. It's just not something we can do, you know, but o- only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so the more we can become dilated, opened uh, to that relationship, the more fruitful we're going to be. And, and that fruitfulness comes from the Eucharistic table. You know, it is in a certain sense, the mass is Jesus's mission being recapitulated for us right there, 
right? Like he comes rushing again at the hands of the the, the priest when uh, during the consecration, like to to come and stoop to us in our brokenness and and pull us back up to the Father. Like that that whole mission of the incarnation is is there every every time the mass is uh, the mass is being celebrated. And so um, yeah, I think I think that's very much so. Uh, the more we can become Eucharistic in our missional activity. Uh, and, and bringing people to adoration, I know it can be a very powerful experience for a lot of people, like where there, there's just something there. There is power in, in the, in the, uh, the body and blood and soul and divinity of Jesus, um, that we can really, you know, that we can really bear that. That's how we bear fruit, right? right? He's the vine. And so we got to, we got to encounter him. You know, I, I can't count the number of times I've heard a story and even I've experienced the story of, uh, you know, I grew up and, and spent the first half of my career in the Protestant world where the idea was to bring people to church and get them excited about church and to, for them to like what they see uh, and understand what they see and make it as easy as possible for them to grasp so that they come back. And I can't tell you the number of stories I've heard of people who were brought to a mass or came to a baptism or came to Eucharistic adoration. And they didn't understand a single thing, but they knew that something was there. It was a different kind of magnetism uh, involved in the mystery of it than we ever attempted to do back when I was Protestant. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to hear. Yeah, I know I know for me even, um, you know, to this day, I'm a young father now. So I spent a lot of masses uh, with <laughs> kids running around in the narthex and stuff, you know, and it's really continued to convict me. Like when I had my conversion when I was 18, I, I very quickly, like the practice of daily mass became, became this, it had that magnetic quality to it where I was just drawn to like every morning, just keep coming back. Cause there was, there was something I was, I was just getting there. Um, and, and to, to today, I mean, that's the thing I'm probably most for is that gift of daily mass, but so often now, like my subjective experience of the mass can be very limited. If I'm just being honest with you, like I, I, I can't tell you how many homilies I've heard recently where I've heard the whole thing, like if you ask me that what the gospel was after a lot of masses, like, I don't know if I could always tell you if I had these magnificent reflections. Um, but it's such a, it's such a, um, it's in become an even more compelling witness to that. There's just objectively something happening there because it, it, like, it's still very fruitful. You know what I mean? It's, it's not just about what I'm kind of, uh, yeah. What, what mystical visions I'm having during mass, but, but there's just grace there. It's just present, you know? And so that I'm very, uh, uh, aware of that. And, you know, and that's now at the same time, there's the, the, the converse, which is, you know, the Augustine's principle of ex opere operantis, where it's like the, the amount of grace that we receive from the sacraments is, is based on our dispositions. Do we believe, right. are we open? But even in the fragmented offering that I provide, I've definitely found that, that Jesus comes rushing forth with all, all of his goodness too. Mm-hmm. We've been talking today with Tim Glimkowski, founder and president of La Alto Catholic Institute, L-A-L-T-O Catholic.com. Go take a look at their website, see what they can offer you. They do parish missions as well as partnering with parishes to help them form missionary disciples in your area. Go take a look at them right now, L-A-L-T-O Catholic.com. Tim, thank you for joining us today. Timothy, you're the man. Thanks for having me on. There's more to my conversation with Tim Glimkowski over for our Patreon supporters. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and for as little as a cup of coffee, $5 a month, you can get access to all the extra segments. We have an extra segment with our guest each and every week with lots more content. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and see how you can support the work we do here at Outside the Walls. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. 
You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Today, we talked with Tim Glimkowski, founder and, uh, and president of La Alto Catholic Institute, L-A-L-T-O, catholic.com. Go take a look at the website. They've got a free e- uh, ebook there, as well as some other resources that you might find useful in your own parish. If you missed any part of today's show or you want to share today's episode with your friends, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And while you're there, click the Patreon link because we give something extra to those who support the show for as little as $5 a month. Uh, Those who support at the $5 level get an extra segment with our guest, extra question or two, anywhere from 8 minutes to 15 minutes of prime content that didn't make it into the show and we give it to you every single week for as little as $5 a month. Uh, we have other rewards as well for those who support at a little bit more. And why don't you go take a look and see if that might fit into your budget to be able to support the work that we do here, bringing you these interviews every week. Well, without further ado, let's go ahead and turn our attention to Scripture and to a reading from church history as we focus our eyes on Easter, as we focus our eyes on on Christ in the Eucharist, and how that empowers us to live out that great commission, to go out and to make disciples. Our first reading today comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, resulting in knowledge of Him. May the eyes of your hearts be enlightened that you may know what is the hope that belongs to his call. What are the riches of glory in his inheritance among the holy ones? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe? In accord with the exercise of his great might, which he worked in Christ, raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every principality, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things beneath his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. That reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, and and it brings out for us something that I think is very important today. We touched on it a little bit earlier in our conversation with Tim Glomkowski, and it's that this mission that God has given us is bigger than we are. I mean, we, we knew that already, but it's something that we cannot do alone. It's the whole thing that I wanted to talk about today is that The Eucharist is the fuel for this mission. It's what gives us union with God so that we can can be his body, right? That Eucharist is what allows us to go out in power and in mission. That union with God, that infilling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit allows us to go out in mission, and then also it returns back to the Eucharist. That mission, again, brings us back into Uh, this relationship with God, face-to-face with Him. So the Eucharist is not the end-all, be-all. It's the the from-all 
to all, right? We, we go from the Eucharist and all things then return to the Eucharist. So here we see in this, this scripture in Ephesians that it's the power of God working within us that allows us to fulfill this mission, right? Pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope that belongs to his call, what are the riches in in his inheritance among the holy ones, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power, his power for us who believe. This mission is something that has been handed to us, but along with this mission, we have also been given his spirit, which gives us the power to live it out. Our reading today from church history comes from a sermon by St. Leo the Great. And he says, At Easter, beloved brethren, it was the Lord's resurrection which was the cause of our joy. Our present rejoicing is on account of his ascension into heaven. With all due solemnity, we are commemorating that day on which our poor human nature was carried up in Christ above all the hosts of heaven above all the ranks of angels, beyond the highest heavenly powers to the very throne of God the Father. It is upon this ordered structure of divine acts that we have been firmly established so that the grace of God may show itself still more marvelous when in spite of the withdrawal from men's sight of everything that is rightly felt to command their reverence, faith does not fail. Hope is not shaken. Charity does not grow cold. For such is the power of great minds. Such is the light of truly believing souls that they put unhesitating faith in what is not seen with a bodily eye. They fix their desires on what is beyond sight. Such fidelity could never be born in our hearts, nor could anyone be justified by faith if our salvation lay only in what was visible. And so, our Redeemer's visible presence has passed into the sacraments. Our faith is nobler and stronger because sight has been replaced by a doctrine whose authority is accepted by believing hearts, enlightened from on high. This faith was increased by the Lord's ascension, strengthened by the gift of the Spirit. It would remain unshaken by fetters and imprisonment, exile and hunger, fire and ravening beasts, and the most refined tortures ever devised by brutal persecutors. Throughout the world, women, no less than men, tender girls as well as boys, have given their life's blood in the struggle for this faith. It is a faith that has driven out devils, healed the sick, and raised the dead. Even the blessed apostles, though they had been strengthened by so many miracles and instructed by so much teaching, took fright at the cruel suffering of the Lord's passion and could not accept his resurrection without hesitation. Yet they made such progress through his ascension that they now found joy in what had terrified them before. They were able to fix their minds on Christ's divinity as he sat at the right hand of his Father, since what was presented to their bodily eyes no longer hindered them from turning all their attention to the realization that he had not left his father when he had come down to earth, nor had he abandoned his disciples when he ascended into heaven. The truth is that the Son of Man was revealed as Son of God in a more perfect and transcendent way once he entered into his Father's glory. 
he now began to be indescribably more present in his divinity to those from whom he was further removed in his humanity. A more mature faith enabled their minds to stretch upward to the Son in his equality with the Father. It no longer needed contact with Christ's tangible body, in which as man he is inferior to the Father. For while his glorified body retained the same nature, the faith of those who believed in him was now summoned to heights where, as Father's equal, the only begotten Son is reached not by physical handling, but by spiritual discernment. That reading comes from a homily by St. Leo the Great. And this is what we've been talking about in great measure today, that we are empowered by the Eucharist, by the body of Christ made manifest to us, presented to us for, for consumption. He becomes, as a friend of mine said, he humbled himself to become man. He took on human nature. And then he humbled himself even further to become our food, to nourish our spirits. And we see Christ through spiritual discernment, through prayer, through taking time aside, sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament, sitting in silence, spending time uh, getting rid of the distractions that surround us in life, and focusing on Christ raised to the heights, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Here, all things are possible. Right, we just talked about a couple of weeks ago uh, in the readings. Remain in me as the vine remains in the branches. You can do nothing on your own. This mission that I've given you, Christ says, you can do nothing on your own apart from the vine. But if you remain in my love, if we remain in the love of Christ, we have all of his life in us. All, not only of his human life, but of his resurrected life. In fact, in the, um, in the I think it's in the Gospel of John, uh, where he's talking about, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. The way that it's worded in the Greek implies that that eternal life, abundant life, starts now, right? Uh, eternal life is not something that we get once we die. Eternal life is something that is given to us at this moment, here in this life, that as we are united to Christ, we're given his eternal life, we're given life abundantly, that we will then take into eternity, but it doesn't start later, it doesn't start when we die, it starts as we are united to Christ in his sacrifice in the Eucharist, and united to Christ in his mission to go out and to share the good news that God has reconciled the whole world to himself through the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. My prayer for you and for me this week is that we would focus on Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, that we would see him ascended in all of his glory, and that we would allow that image to nourish us, to strengthen us, and to draw us into holiness. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week as we conclude this mini-series on the Eucharist and on the Mass in this Easter season. Today's show was brought to you by Lillian Vogel and all those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com and join their numbers. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.